You're listening to North Bay Christ the King's weekly sermon podcast. In this week's message, Pastor Tyler Mitchell illustrates overcoming selfishness with true faith. All right, so we're in the second week of our series. Dan introduced it last week. It's called Flawed. And the main idea of this series is that God uses flawed people who are willing to walk with him by faith. Uh, He's not looking for us to be perfect. He's not looking for us to have spotless lives and get everything right, but to just simply trust and follow him. Uh, Throughout history, God's accomplished his work through imperfect people. Um, This summer, we're going to journey through one chapter of the Bible, Hebrews 11. It's a chapter that celebrates the faith of people in in the Old Testament, um, and that when you look closer, you can see that they're pretty messed up people uh, that God used. And we see that God didn't use people's perfection or skills or talents. What he really uses is faith. What he really uses is faith. And uh, in Hebrews, we discover that God is looking for in each of us, what he's looking for is is real faith. Real faith, genuine faith, not perfection. Because God can use us in spite of our flaws, in spite of our mistakes, uh, in spite of uh, everything that we get wrong. We don't have to have life figured out for God to use us. And uh, this is should be pretty freeing because if you look close, we're all pretty messed up. We're all pretty messed up. Um, we're all flawed people. We feel we live with the weight of our mistakes. Uh, we're constantly dealing with our own failures. And sometimes we try to hide it. And because of our flaws, we may believe the lies that, that we don't measure up, that God can't use us, that God wants to keep us at arm's length. And we can get stuck in that place. But if you're in that place, you're in good company because as Dan talked about last week, you might have seen the sign on the door, uh, there's no perfect people allowed here. So if you're perfect, raise your hand and the ushers are going to come and escort you out the building. So um, we just, sorry, sorry, it's contractual. So um, no, we're a community built on the grace of Jesus. Uh, We're trying our best to follow him in our daily life. And uh, as we talked about last week uh, with Dan using the the chair as an example, faith is not simply believing that God exists, um, but it's putting our full weight on it like you would in the chair you're sitting on, that you you believe that that chair is going to hold you up. It's, that's, what, that's what faith is. It's, it's stepping out. It's not just believing something, but acting on it. Stepping out into God's purpose, God's mission for us, um, and trusting God that he'll make up for our lack, that he'll meet us in that place. It's the, um, yeah, because when we are with God, when we have faith in God, we don't have to be insecure about our flaws. Uh, we don't have to be insecure about our weakness. God is, is walking right there with us. So um, today we're going to look at the first story, the first characters mentioned in Hebrews 11. And what we'll find is is that if we live without faith, if we live without the ability to trust God with our full weight, um, then our flaws can overwhelm us. Um, And there's one flaw in particular that can, that can overwhelm us. Um, all these heroes of faith that we're going to look at, all these people that, that Hebrews 11 talks about shared a common struggle, a common flaw. In fact, everyone sitting in this room uh, shares this same struggle. 
And that struggle is selfishness. That struggle is selfishness. It's the foundation of what makes us flawed. And, and selfishness prevents us from walking in faith. I don't know if you're like me, but it seems like I'm locked in this constant struggle between loving God and loving myself. And often I feel like I'm loving myself more than I'm loving God. Just ask my wife. She, she knows better than anybody. Um, but yeah, we have this struggle between loving ourselves and loving God. When I was seven years old... Um, when I was seven years old, I lived in a house in the Seattle area, a busy street, lots of kids. And um, one day, we're, it's a summer day. It does not look anything like this. I don't know what's going on with this weather, but God, you can take it back. I don't want it. Um, but we're, we're out playing, and we hear the sound. You know this sound. It goes like, do, 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 do. Do, 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 All right. Right? What is that? Ice cream. Right? Ice cream. Woo! Okay. So I'm excited because uh, I love ice cream. Still do. So I, I ran into my house and I asked my mom uh, for money so I could, I could buy ice cream. And so what she does, she gives me $4. But she, she gives me a condition. She says, okay, you can have $4 to buy ice cream, but you have to also buy something for your four-year-old brother. Oh, man. Okay. So I go back to the truck, and I'm looking at the truck. It's right outside my house. And I'm seeing all the pictures with all the beautiful images of ice cream, all the colors. Um, and I happen to glance at, at this one amazing-looking one. It was, uh, it was Super Mario's face made into an ice cream bar. And I remember this really well. It had like a, a cherry bubblegum nose on it. I mean, this, this is primo uh, for a seven-year-old. And so I look at the price, and it's $3.75. $3.75. Okay, but I can do math because I'm in second grade. So um, I figure out, okay, well, I still got a quarter for my brother. So I'm looking to see, oh, perfect. There's this little tiny orange popsicle that they'll sell me for a quarter. So I buy the Mario face and the tiny little orange popsicle. And uh, when I get back in the house, I get into maybe the most trouble of my life. Um, my mom's normally not an angry person, um, but this is an exception. Um, she, was, she was livid with me. Um, so yeah, every one of us are born selfish. It's a curse that's existed from the beginning of time, uh, since Adam and Eve chose their own way over God's way. Selfishness has inflicted us all like a disease, and it gets in the way of experiencing healthy relationship with God and with others. It affects every part of our lives, every decision we make. Today, as we look at faith and selfishness, we're going to see it through the lens of sibling rivalry. I don't know if you grew up with siblings, but I don't know if there's, there's any other relationship that just draws out the selfishness in you, like that sibling relationship. You guys might be cool with your brother and sister now, but growing up, man, that was some, some tough times. Um, you know, we're always in, if it's like me and my brother, we're always in competition. We're always comparing ourselves to our sibling. Who's the, uh, who's the most popular? Who has the most friends? Who's the best athlete? Who's getting the best grades? And most importantly, who's the best looking? Because that is really important. Um, you know, we, we, if you felt like me growing up, 
man, your siblings are always getting in the way of your happiness. Um, There are siblings in the Bible that help to illustrate the struggle we have between walking in faith and walking in selfishness. Um, They're the first first story mentioned uh, in the book. It's a tale as old as time, to quote Beauty and the Beast. Um, Of course, the siblings that I'm referring to are Cain and Abel. Um, they're, they're the first story to come chronologically uh, in the Bible as you follow through this chapter. And it's, a, it's this ancient epic story of sibling rivalry. And typically in this series, when we look at, when we look at flaws and faith, we're going to look through the lens of one person following their story, like Moses, who's just got books and books written about him. Cain and Abel is just a short standalone story that really offers a comparison between what living with faith looks like and what living without faith looks like. So let's, uh, let's look at Hebrews 11.4 up on the screen. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. So spoiler alert, Abel dies. I don't want to cast a pall over you, but that's where the story is headed. Um, but yeah, Cain and Abel are interesting characters. Uh, Abel is the younger brother. He's the second son of Adam and Eve. Uh, if you go back to Genesis 4, it says that Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and had a baby, which they named Cain. And Cain was celebrated. He says that Eve praises God saying, with the Lord's help, I've given birth to a man. And starting with Cain, the oldest son is a big deal. Like we see this like throughout the Bible, the oldest son is a big deal. In fact, Cain's name means possession. Like to Eve, Cain was like her prized possession. It's what, it's what she cared most about. And if you're a parent, you might remember how big a deal that first child is. You treat them like your prized possession. You photo document everything, every day, every moment. We've got just like gads of pictures that we'll never look at. You know, it's just, we, we documented everything. Um, you might have spent way too much on, on baby clothes or toys you thought were going to be useful, but they never liked. Um, you know, they, <clears throat> they're celebrated, this idea that Cain is celebrated, he's important. And then Eve has her second child, Abel. And you know what Abel's name means? It means vanity. Vanity? Wow. She names him Vanity because he, he was, it was like a luxury to have a, suck, a second son. You know, Cain was celebrated and she kind of felt satisfied with that. So, so having Abel was, was kind of a luxury. And he, uh, he's less celebrated than Cain. As they grow up, there's this dynamic of one brother being more celebrated than the other. And we might not go to that extreme, but I know, like, as parents, there's a big difference sometimes in, in, in when, when you're giving birth to your first child versus when you're giving birth to your second child. Um, the, like, for our daughter, like, when we had her, we were at the hospital, like, for the longest period of time we could. She was fine. We just wanted to make sure that everything was okay. We stayed there, like, three days you know, running tests, you know, and then when I'm driving home, I'm driving like so careful, like, man, this is, you know, like two miles an hour, you know, just, I don't want, I don't want anything to happen. Um, And then 
with the second child, I don't know if you're like us, but you relax a little bit. You're like, this is okay, we got this. Like, we didn't even have our, our second child uh, at the hospital. We had, had him at the birth center. And uh, it, the birth center, it was like the fast food version. It was like, <laughs> it, it was like he was born, and then uh, he went through like the weight, height, birth certificate. Boom, we had him in the car in three hours. I mean, it was like, it was weird just strapping this little guy in the car, you know, like, yeah, he's fine. Um, but, but yeah, like, like the contrast with my kids, you know, like as they grow up, Cain experiences like this, you know, privilege over Abel. Like he's more celebrated. And when they become men, um, they choose different career paths. So Cain chooses to be like a farmer. Like he's going to, it says he worked with the fruits of the ground. So he's, he chooses to become a farmer. And um, Abel chooses to be a shepherd. So he chooses to uh, take care of sheep. There's really nothing significant in the career paths that they chose. It's not, um, it's not that one was better than the other or, or God liked the shepherding more than the, um, than the crop thing. That's not it. Um, they just chose different work. But the significance comes in is when they go to worship God. Uh, there's a point in time, maybe the end of like a, a harvest season, when the two brothers bring to God offerings from their work. You know, by, it's like when we, when we give out of our paycheck, we recognize like, God, you're, you're God of everything. You're God of all my life, uh, including my finances, the work that I do. Uh, the, it's, it's ultimately yours. So um, they had the same idea. They're bringing a sacrifice to God because he's God. And... Um, and so, so they come before God. And when they come to worship, it says that Cain brings God some food, some fruits and of the ground. And there's kind of this implied casual attitude about Cain's gift. Like he didn't really put a whole lot of thought into it. It wasn't really intentional about what he was actually offering God. Just like, this will do. I'm going to just take this. And um, when Abel comes to worship, he, he's really selective about what he decides to bring to God. He brings God the best of, of his flock. He brings to God the oldest of his flock. Like the, the, the sheep that he's been working with the longest, the, the biggest, best, tastiest, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, he, he brings it before God and he, and he sacrifices it to God. And what happens is that God accepts Abel's offering, his worship, and he rejects Cain's offering. It literally means that like God looked at Abel's offering and was like greatly interested in what Abel offered him. And when he looked at Cain's offering, he really had no interest in what Cain was offering. Why? Why? Does God care most about what was being offered? No. It's the heart behind it. God cares about the heart that, that, um, that they put into it. For Abel, he was meticulous about what he offered. With Cain, he was flippant about what he offered. So what do we learn from this interaction? What do we learn from, from God's interaction with Cain and Abel here? Well, first, we learn that God disregards what I'm going to call the religious approach to worship. This is what Cain offers is a religious approach. Cain offers, uh, Cain's gift to God comes from a life that's self-focused. 
To Cain, worship was a routine task to just check off his to-do list. He didn't put really any intentionality or care into what he gave God. He looked around and said, ah, this will do, this will do. I don't really need this. And he brought it before God. You know, the religious approach to worship, it might recognize that God is God, but it doesn't really believe that God is good. It doesn't really find joy in loving and serving God. It just, it tries to keep him at arm's length. That's because the goal of, of, uh, re- of the religious approach to worship is appeasement. Uh, we'll give God in order, we'll give God what we have to uh, in order to make God happy. It's not actually surrendering to God. It's giving God enough so that he leaves us alone. So that we can keep living the way that we want to live. And sometimes, if we're honest, we don't like the idea of God being in charge of our lives or giving everything over uh, to God. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, in religion, you, obey, you only obey because God is useful. God is useful to us. And many times we approach God like he's something to be used. We don't like the idea of God being in the, in the driver's seat of our lives. And I really don't think sometimes we like him to be in the, in the back seat because then he'll start backseat driving. So where I really think that we like God is in the trunk. We like God to be in the trunk, like, uh, like a trunk monkey. Anybody seen uh, the videos, old ads about, about the trunk monkey, the car ad? No? That's okay. I'll, I'll jog your memory. That's fine. Um, you know, there's this happy couple driving along, and they get a flat tire, um, and, and they don't know what to do. And then one of them hits the trunk monkey button, and a chimpanzee comes out of the trunk and fixes the flat tire, and they go on their way. Or um, there's another ad where someone's trying to steal a car, and he's in the car, he's you know, messing with the dash or whatever. Trunk monkey pops out of the back, takes a crowbar, bam, hits him, he's gone. Um, yeah, so sometimes that's what we want God to be. We want God to fix, come in and fix everything. We want God to be kind of our trunk monkey. And, uh, you know, what, what that looks like is that we live into this lie that, um, and this rhythm that we can manage pretty good by ourselves. And then when life gets tough, I'll start pursuing God until things calm down. And then I'll go back to living my way until things get bad. And then I'll hit the trunk monkey button and God will fix everything. And then I'll go back to it. So what this does is it makes our pursuit of God directly determined by our circumstances. If my life sucks, then I hit the God button. We can also go as far to say to blame God when things go wrong. Because for some reason, we get this idea into our heads that he's there to, to do what I want. And when we treat God religiously, we don't really believe that God is good or that he can ultimately be trusted with our lives. The religious approach gives to God with a tight fist and a hard heart. It holds on to this lingering belief that we can't really trust God to take care of the everyday needs. That that he's not really there with us in our struggle through work and family and all of that. And it, it, it... it lies to us, tells us that ultimately we can run our lives better and that living for ourselves will be more fulfilling than living for God and his purpose and his kingdom. So instead of pursuing God all the time, we get busy living our lives, building our careers, making our plans, and and we have brief little encounters with God along the way. 
And so what ends up happening um, is that, that we end up giving this God of the universe the scraps of our lives. And uh, the, the bummer about this approach is that it really robs us of that joy, uh, that life that God wants us to experience. It reduces God to this, our relationship with God to a static, ordinary, predictable experience. And if, if, we, if we're just looking to appease God, he becomes a distant Lord that's uh, maybe disappointed with us or just needs to be appeased or checked in with now and again instead of a living, active friend type of relationship. Um, one area in my life where I feel like I'm giving God scraps is in prayer. Um, and I, I feel like it, prayer is, is my way of making God my trunk monkey. Like I just find myself praying um, whenever I, like, I'm in my car or I'm stressed out, I hit that button. But I haven't, you know, I struggle with that everyday rhythm. Like, every day I'm going to wake up and I'm going to spend time with God. And I'm going to say, God, here I am. Use me as you want me. Use me to, to uh, bless other people. Use me to share the gospel. Use me to serve people who are struggling. Instead, I start every day by saying, man, I hope I just make it through. Uh, I, hope, I hope I just survive, or um, how can I serve myself today? And way more satisfying, um, but, but if we started each day with, with saying, God, here I am, use me, how revolutionary would that be in our lives? If we just made ourselves, all of ourselves, everything, if we gave everything over to God to just say, God, use me. We'd wake up every day with anticipation. Maybe not every day. But we'd live with this sense of anticipation that God is going to show up today in, in our lives, in our circumstances. So this, that approach, this, this approach that gives God everything is becomes way more satisfying than Cain's religious worship, which is done in self-interest. It's way better than trying to keep God at arm's length as we attempt to maintain control of our own lives. And instead of a religious approach, we see what God ultimately desires is what we have in Abel's offering. Abel had the faith to believe that God was God, and he also had the faith to believe that God was good. He put his faith in God's goodness. And Abel was set free from the selfishness that plagued his brother. Because he trusted that God was good, it was easy to give him his best stuff. Abel's gift is not religious, it's relational. It's focused on God, and it's not given to appease God, but to bless God. Abel's aim is to bring God glory and not himself. Because Abel believed that God was good and that having a relationship with God was ultimately better than whatever other, whatever other way he could find to satisfy himself. If we're in relationship with God, it allows us to stop making attempts to be good enough. Um, it frees us from that need and it allows us to just be secure in this relationship, knowing that, that God loves us that God cares about us. And when we make mistakes, we just bring those mistakes right to the Father because he cares about us because we believe ultimately that he's good. I struggled with a long time for believing that God was distant and he was constantly disappointed in me. That, that when I screwed up, 
it just it wedged me further and further away from God. And that's, that's the farthest thing from the truth is when we believe that God is good and when we take one little step, he comes running. And, uh, and that's the relational God that we, uh, that we serve. So when you contrast these two brothers, Cain and Abel, you see that real faith overcomes our selfishness. And that's the big takeaway is that, is that when we have real faith, it overcomes the selfishness in our lives. Abel trusted God as God, that God was worthy and able to be in control of his life. God wasn't the trunk monkey, he was the driver. And Abel also believed that God was good, and that, that knowing, loving God was the best investment that he could make. And when we really believe that God is God and that God is good, that's the point when we can start laying stuff down. We believe that he's God, he's in control. We believe that he's good, that he loves us. And when relationship with God is more important than uh, our house, our job, um, our friends, our addictions, and our current circumstances, which seem, seem to, you know, swing our ship all over the place, um, you know, it's, <clears throat> it's, uh, it's freeing. And it won't be easy um, but God gives us that power to lay it all down. When we take one step, he comes running. And the struggle between walking in selfishness and walking in faith happens daily for disciples of Jesus. Um, let's look at this scripture from Luke 9. Uh, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Uh, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What stuck out to me here was this idea of denying ourselves daily. Denying ourselves is not something that, uh, th that we really respect in our culture. It kind of makes us cringe, actually, uh, because we literally have everything at our fingertips. If you have Amazon Prime, you have everything. No. Uh, yeah. Uh, Amazon. You know, I can order something, and in two days it shows up to my house. I mean, that's, that's amazing, right? I can just, like, click, boom, it shows up, it's there. Um, you know, we have everything at our, at our fingertips. Um, denying ourselves, it, it takes faith. It's risky. Uh, it's tough to take to lay down pursuing wealth, pursuing um, trying to create our own happiness, our own version of happiness. Um, Daryl Johnson describes it this way. Uh, losing our lives for Jesus means investing all that we are and have in him and his gospel. By saying to him, here is my home, my checkbook, my talents and gifts, my brain, my heart, my hands, my feet, and my mouth. Here, it's all yours. Use it to glorify yourself and further your purpose on earth. That's the posture that Abel has. This ultimately, everything I am is about you. And you can have whatever you want. But this is a daily decision. It's not something we do once. It's a posture that we have to take every day. We have to put our hands up. Uh, my friend described this daily decision as like getting up each morning and choosing to flip a switch. 
Uh, each morning, we can choose to flip the switch between loving ourselves and, and loving Jesus, loving God, following God. Um, we can flip that switch that's okay with losing our lives to gain something better. It means each morning when we come before God, we hold open our hands and say, here I am, take whatever you want. But what if we choose not to flip that switch? What happens? Because we can choose not to. God's not making us do anything. That's not how he operates. What if we choose not to flip that switch? Well, the danger is that if we reject God for self, it actually doesn't lead to the happiness that we think we'll be receiving. Choosing self is a trap uh, because a life fixated on self never satisfies. It destroys. Cain wasn't used to being the ignored brother. When God rejects Cain's offering, Cain just loses it. It says that he's filled with rage. He became dejected. He was just angry. And God, being good here, he tries to coach, uh, coach Cain through his feelings. Uh, God doesn't seek to condemn Cain for his selfish thoughts. He just wants to teach him. That's God's heart. Again, God is good. And so he, so he comes to Cain. He says, why are you angry? Why are you downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. Selfishness is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. He's God's coaching Cain saying, listen, the relational offering is better. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. It's, it's better. And, uh, but Cain doesn't listen to God, and he lets his selfishness take over. And you know what happens. He, he kills his brother Abel. By killing his brother Abel, he thought that would solve the problem. Abel is the problem. It's not me. I just got to get rid of, rid of Abel. But what actually happens is that it makes his life a thousand times worse in that moment. He kills his brother. It destroys relationship. It actually, and, and what happens is that that decision further separates Cain from the happiness that he's seeking. He's sent away. God sends him away, still in his love. He sends Cain away for his own protection. He's like, you're going to be a fugitive now. I'm going to put a mark on you so that people don't mess with you. But you are going to be a fugitive. You are going to have to wander around for the rest of your life. You know, I, and one thing I note is that God is still gracious to Cain, even after he directly disobeys him and kills his brother. But selfishness destroys relationships. It destroys marriages. It destroys families. It destroys churches. And you've seen this story play out time and time again. We all feel the effects of selfishness. You know, I had a, a friend recently make, make a decision um, that he decided he was unhappy in his marriage and the, the solution was to just leave his wife and, and start over. But instead of that bringing him freedom, it created more loneliness. It created distance between him and his kids. Um, it, created, it made it harder for him to even sustain himself. And now life, it just hurts. Life's not better. He's actually more trapped than he felt before. And that's a common story. God isn't offering us slavery. He's offering us, the, he's offering us freedom from destroying our lives with selfishness. 
That God is offering us the freedom from destroying our lives with selfishness. As Cain discovers, selfishness is a trap that doesn't lead to freedom. The only place that we can find freedom is when we're really surrendered to God, who loves us and has eternity locked up for us. Because while selfishness destroys, what we build up through faith never goes away. Ne- never goes away. What we, what we gain through faith in Christ never goes away. That, that, that if, if you are a believer, you have to live with eternity in mind. Because like Abel, we receive an eternal inheritance that's locked up. It lasts forever. I think the most powerful line maybe of this chapter is, uh, is the last line where, uh, in, in verse 4 where it says, And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Referring to Abel. That, that Abel, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. His legacy is still stronger than Cain. His, his inheritance is locked up. Um, he continues to speak to generations and generations. Jesus refers to Abel. Um, all, all sorts of uh, other references in the Bible leading up to Jesus, they reference Abel as righteous and faithful. And even though it cost him his life, Abel gives God his best. And for that, he's more celebrated than Cain. When he was growing up, it was this way. But to God, it's this way. He's more celebrated than Cain, not because he was perfect, but that he chose to walk by faith. He chose to walk by faith. He chose to surrender. And for that reason, Abel's called righteous or right with God. And you may be sitting here today, you might be struggling with some of this because like me, uh, you've made mistakes. Like me, Feels like most days you wake up and flip the love yourself switch over the love God switch. But if you're in that place, the good news is that God is patient with us. That this is a journey, that God is patient with us in our journey from walking selfishly to walking in faith. And that God's actually walked with billions and billions of people through this same struggle that you're going through. So he's, he's kind of an expert. He comes highly referred um, your selfishness is not new to God. It's because he desires the best for you, and he just wants you to take that next step towards him, towards his love. You know, one thing I, I see here, even after Cain kills his brother, God is still gracious to him. God is still good. And if he's good to Cain, he'll be good to you. So as the band comes up, there's one question that I want to leave uh, with you today, and that is, what are you willing to offer God? What are you willing to offer God today? This is a daily question. What are you willing to offer God today, right now, in this moment? Have you been offering God your scraps in hopes that he'll just leave you alone? Or maybe that he'll hang out and fix things when they break? Or are you willing to offer everything to God Every relationship, every, everything you have in your life, are you willing to offer that to God? Your job, your current circumstances. You know, maybe there's something you're holding on to today. Maybe, maybe it's mistakes that you need to offer God, that you've, you've allowed mistakes to have way too big a, a, a part in your identity, that you've allowed them to, to uh, take over your life, and God might be calling you to, to hand those failures to him. God might be calling you to hand your fear to him. Maybe he's been speaking to you to step up into a situation, to share your faith with a coworker or a neighbor. 
And you just need to hand over that fear, that desire to, uh, to preserve your self-image or, or whatever. Wherever you're at, no matter what's happened, God wants, God wants you because God loves you. And uh, God wants you to choose the, the relationship that you can have with him over the, uh, the fleeting uh, pleasure that you could experience by walking selfishly. And the cool thing about being a part of this church is that we walk this together. Uh, we get to walk this together, whether it's in small group or here. We, uh, we're all on that journey um, from walking in selfishness, walking in faith. We're all a part of that. And you're part of a community that isn't perfect. I'll go back to what I said in the beginning. If you're perfect, you have to leave. <laughs> but uh, but we're, we're figuring it out day by day. We're walking with God, taking that next step. So let's lean on each other as we learn to walk in faith. Pray with me. Jesus, uh, we just come before you this morning, God, with our, with our hands held open. Jesus, we want to offer you everything. And Lord, we may not be in a place where we are ready to do that. Maybe we have an inkling that we want to do that. God, I just pray that you would, you would take our little step and bust the door open to our hearts that you would bust the door down, God, that we would, uh, we would not live selfishly, um, Lord, but we would live open-handedly with, with you, with our neighbors, with our uh, spouse, with our kids, that, that you would pour your love in through our hearts and that it would pour out on other people. Um, God, I pray that you would teach us how to live and walk in relationship with you. Lord, help us to surrender our desire for religion, our desire to have a perfect little system figured out. Help us to surrender that to this new experience of living, uh, living in faith, living with the expectation that at any moment, God, you, you will move, you will speak, you will do something, God. Lord, increase our faith, God. Lord, that's the prayer. It's been the prayer of so many people, God, just that you would increase our faith in you, that you would continue to show us how good you are. God, that you are good, that you care about us, that you want to be with us, God. And so many times we allow the enemy to tell us that that's not true, that you don't, but you do, God, you do. I pray, I pray for, for the freedom that, that, that walking with you brings, God. I pray for, for that for everyone here, Lord, and that as a community um, that we would learn to be uh, selfless. Uh, because we know how good you are, how much you love us, God. So just, uh, just use us, be with us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.